There's a, a pastor that I've mentioned many times before. You know that I respect him. His name's John Piper. Um, he, at one point, preached through the book of Romans. You know how long it took him to go through the book of Romans? I'm thinking, if I'm not mistaken, it took him and his church eight years to go through the book of Romans. Now, I'm not going to go eight years in the book of Romans with you, but I'm going to be honest with you. This is going to be the primary backdrop for our sermons for the rest of this year and into the next. We'll take breaks for holidays and things like that, and as we feel that it is appropriate, but stick with me because this book is so full of good, good stuff. And you're like, well, all the Bible's full of good, good stuff. Yes, it is. I'm having a hypothetical argument with you here. You're right. But it's good to go through books of the Bible because that's how God laid it out. And I fear that when we jump around, sometimes we miss just learning how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible. So I love going through books. I'm so excited to be back in a book now. Um, Romans, a big part of what Romans is about is Paul, or God really, through Paul, pouring concrete into the foundation of Christians. You can't build a, a big structure without a good foundation. It won't withstand the test of time. The wind might blow it right over. It's important to have good foundation for life and faith as well. So Paul just pours concrete into our foundations as we're studying this book. Now, one of the big parts of your foundation as a Christian is unity with other Christians. You being united with other Christians gives you a lot of strength. I want to imagine that you're just in a free fall. Um, you, you lose your job, you lose your house, things, whatever your situation is now, worst case scenario, everything goes terribly and you lose it all, financially speaking, and you're just in a free fall. Do you realize that as Christians in the family of Christ, you have like a hundred safety nets under you? You have dozens and dozens and dozens of people just here in this congregation that love you, that will be there for you, and you will be okay because we're in this together. And when we're united, we are strong. Some of you have already experienced how that unity brings you strength. They say that blood is thicker than water. Well, the blood of Christ is thicker yet. But this unity can be disrupted. And Doolin's Grove knows this all too well, don't we? Raise your hand if you were here a decade ago. Ten years ago, 2001, if you were here a part of this church. A good portion of us. Back then, would you have ever in a billion years guessed that this church would split in half? No, you, you would never have guessed that that would have happened. So who's to say that right now, this Sunday, we're not within a decade of another church split? You didn't see it coming in 2001. Who's to say we're going to remain together now? I mean, we are a gathering of deeply sinful people Saved by grace, being redeemed and sanctified, but sinful people. We are people with different perspectives, different expectations, different sin proclivities. It's really amazing that we stay together at all when you think about it. So how can a church stay together? How can Christians stay together? 
Well, one of Paul's primary goals in the book of Romans is uniting a church that has sort of two groups in it. These two groups were the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Okay, so I have to give you a little history here. Here's, here's what you need to understand to understand the tension that was going on in the Roman church. Okay, Jews, historically, God's chosen people, they're the ones that got God's covenants. They're the ones that got God's laws. They're the ones that had the special relationship with God. Gentiles, everybody else. Did you know that Jesus was a Jewish person? The disciples, Jewish? See, we're, I'm pretty sure we're all outsiders. I, I don't think that we have any Jewish Christians here that I'm aware of unless someone's visiting. The Gentiles were outside of this special relationship with God for a long, long time. Now, when Christ died and the new covenant opened the doors to Gentile believers as well, it was a new era. So Jews believed in Christ and were Christians, and then Gentiles were believing in Christ and were Christians. Now, the Jews brought with them generations and generations of traditions and laws and practices that were a prominent part of their relationship with God. Gentiles didn't know anything about all that stuff. Gentiles were just, they were just happy. They were, they were just happy to be free and enjoying new life in Christ. Now, the Roman church was made up of both of these groups. And there was tension. And you can see all through the book of Romans, tension. It had to feel like, if, if I could put my, myself in the position of the Jewish people, when all these Gentiles start coming into the church, it had to feel like they, they were the only son. And all of a sudden their father adopted some new kid. And this new kid doesn't quite seem to be following the rules. And forever you were the only son. And now there's this new kid. It, it had to be tense and awkward. And for the Gentiles, I had to put myself in their shoes. And they're coming in and, you know, they know new life in Christ. They know that Christ is powerful. He's changed them. And the Jews are walking around like hall monitors saying, well, you're not quite obeying these laws that we've had and these traditions. Now put all that in one church. Now, this church probably started off mainly Jewish, but then one of the emperors expelled all the Jews. So for a while, Gentiles grew up in the Roman church, and it was primarily a Roman, I mean, a Gentile church. Now, hang with me. The history lesson's almost over. Don't let me lose you, okay? I know nobody likes history on a Sunday morning. You're like wishing you had your coffee. Hang with me. It's important, okay? So the Jews filter back in, and now it's primarily a Gentile church. So to put that in terms maybe we can understand a little better, Who's familiar with Elevation? The big super atomic bomb of a church that's blowing up in Charlotte. Okay, if you're not familiar with it, it's a youthful church. Uh, the head pastor looks like he just walked out of a, a concert. Tattoos, piercings, spiky hair, t-shirts. Now imagine that Doolin's Grove and Elevation had to merge for some reason. I don't know why this would be. Maybe me and Stephen Furtick just struck up a great friendship and we're like, hey, we should do this together. And then you come in, Doolin's Grove, traditional church, we wear suits, not terribly demonstrative as we sing. Maybe that's something that will change over time. Where's Alicia? She's not in here. So you come in and, and you hear the music thumping out in your car before you even get out of the car. And that's the way it is when you go over there. And you come in and whoever's standing up here is not wearing a suit. They're wearing like tattered, ripped blue jeans 
you better believe there'd be tension. Now, I don't, now I'm just using elevation because that might be something you're familiar with. I'm not really that familiar with that church, but let's just say, as I suspect, they love Jesus over there. And we love Jesus over here. But you combine that and there's going to be tension. That's kind of what Paul's addressing here, just to help you feel sort of what he's looking to. So he's trying to unite these two groups. So back into the text, first he reaches out and he grabs the hands of the, of the Jewish Christians. In the first couple of verses, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. So he, he's speaking the Jews' language here. He's talking heritage. He's talking the Holy Scriptures. He's talking the prophets. He's grabbing their hand. He's saying, listen, remember Jesus. This is your guy here. This is your Messiah that you've been waiting for. Your prophets have been talking about him. Your scriptures have been talking about him. Remember Jesus. Did you know that there's, most people agree about 60 major prophecies about who the Messiah would be in the Old Testament? There, people have different lists, but it's about 60 major prophecies. Jesus fulfilled them all. Now, that's a big deal. What were some of these prophecies? They, if you're not familiar with them, his ancestry was prophesied or, or predicted beforehand. His exact lineage was predicted. His birth was predicted that it would be in a small town of about a thousand people called Bethlehem and that it would be from a virgin. His betrayal was predicted. It was predicted that he would be betrayed, that he'd be betrayed by a friend that he'd be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver and that those 30 pieces of silver would be thrown on the floor. That was all predicted over 400 years before Christ was even born. His death was predicted in the Jewish scriptures before that method of death even existed. Details of the crucifixion were predicted before anybody even knew what crucifixion was. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah that they've been waiting for. And just so you know how unlikely it is that anybody else could ever fulfill these predictions. I read somewhere, and I'm assuming it's true because it was in a book by a guy I respect. If it's not true, it's his fault. But this will give you an idea of how improbable it is that any one man could fulfill all 60 of these prophecies. Okay? So imagine the state of Texas. Imagine the state of Texas totally cleared off of all trees and buildings and everything. It's just a big, empty field, the entire state of Texas. Now imagine that helicopters fly over the state of Texas, Texas, dropping silver dollars out all over the land. They do this for weeks and weeks until the state of Texas is covered in two feet of silver dollars, the entire state. Now one of these silver dollars is painted black, okay? So another helicopter comes by and drops off a guy in a blindfold. He can walk as far as he wants, take as long as he wants, but he can only pick up one silver dollar blindfolded. The odds of him getting that black silver dollar are roughly the same as the odds of any one person matching up with just eight of these prophecies, let alone 60. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah that they were waiting for. So as Paul begins this letter, he grabs the hand of the Jewish people and he says, Remember Jesus. 
This is your Messiah that you've been waiting for. Your prophets predicted him. Your scriptures predicted him. But there's more. As we get into verse 4, he's got the Jewish people's hands, and he reaches over and he grabs the Gentile Christians' hands. And he says, still talking about Jesus, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we speak in Gentiles' language. Power. Resurrection from the dead. Gentiles didn't care all that much about the Jewish prophecies. But power is something they understood. Resurrection from the dead is something that they understood. So he grabs the Jews. He says, just stop thinking so much about your Jewishness for a second and think about Jesus. And he's grabbing the Gentiles and he's saying, stop thinking so much about your Gentileness and think about Jesus. And we need to do this too. There's a guy, the guy that wrote this book I'm going to quote from in a second, more than a carpenter, Josh McDowell. You ever heard of him? It's a really good book. I'm about to recommend it. I just, I just did, and I'm going to do it again. Um, he spent over 700 hours studying the resurrection. And he came away, and this was his conclusion. The resurrection is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted on humanity, or it is the most important fact in history. Which is it? I think we need to think about the resurrection afresh. I think we need to remember that Jesus was a real man who really lived. He's a historical figure, the same as George Washington is or Christopher Columbus is. He really lived. He really claimed to be the one and only way to God. He said this. A real guy said this. If I said that, if I stood here this morning and said... Guys, I got news for you. I wasn't going to tell you yet, but I'm going to go ahead. I can't take it any longer. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one only way to God. I'm God's son. I would be laughed at, fired, and forgotten within a generation. Jesus said those things. And now over 2,000 years later, people are still giving their lives over to him in belief something different about Jesus. He was a real man who really claimed to be the Savior. He really died on a cross. Historians, doctors, lawyers, everybody has studied the records, the accounts. This real man really died. He really did. I know these things sound so far away and almost mythical, but just wipe that clean and remember, this was a real man. This really happened. He really died and he really was resurrected from the dead. Now, I know that sounds really bizarre, doesn't it? Do you believe it? Is he really raised from the dead? Well, in order for Christianity to explode the way it did after his crucifixion, I really think that it's necessary that that tomb where he was buried was empty. Some people say, well, maybe when they went to find him, it was the wrong tomb. Maybe that explains it. Well, if that was the case, why didn't the Romans or the Jewish religious leaders point them to the right tomb and say, everybody quiet down. Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. He's right over there. 
Or maybe the disciples planned some big conspiracy to steal Jesus' body and to weekend at Bernie's style fake his resurrection. You got to remember, the disciples were just regular dudes. This wasn't Ocean's Eleven. They would have had to get past Roman guards who would be put to death for letting Jesus' body disappear. Roman guards were trained for this sort of thing. Disciples weren't trained for that kind of thing. Maybe it was a mass hallucination and people just thought they were seeing Jesus. Do you know that 500 people saw Jesus after he had died? Over a period of like 40 days. There's never been an account of that many people hallucinating the same thing over that long of a time. Maybe he only passed out, some people say. Maybe he didn't really die on the cross. Maybe he just, you know, it was a traumatic experience. Maybe he just passed out. And then he just came to in the tomb, wrapped in all that stuff, and just was like, I'm not doing it here. Ripped it off and walked out. If that happened, if he had just passed out and he woke up, let's just say that's possible, which it isn't. But even if it was, he would have woken up with his back ripped to shreds from the whipping. He would have woken up with his arm, his shoulders pulled out of socket from the crucifixion with, with holes nailed through his wrist and his feet. A ridiculous amount of blood loss. And you think he's going to get up, be able to just get up, much less get up, take off all that stuff, heave a huge stone out of the way, slip past two Roman guards or however many Roman guards, and then, even if he could do all that, and then show up to people who knew him before the crucifixion in such a way that they really thought he defeated death? No, he would have needed immediate and prolonged medical attention. I can't even type if I have a splinter in one of my fingers. Much less do all that. I really, not just religiously, but really with my mind and my heart, believe that the resurrection happened. And that puts Jesus in a whole different category from any other man who ever lived. So, why, what does that have to do with unity in the church? Remember we were talking about unity at one point? What does any of this have to do with unity in the church? Well, here's sort of the bottom line. If Jesus really is the Messiah, and if Jesus really was raised from the dead... If you believe that, then that necessarily means that he was who he said he was, which means that he is the Lord. If Jesus really was the Messiah and really did raise from the dead, he is the Lord. And following one Lord unites people. If we're all following the same Lord, Jesus Christ, we'd be united. Soldiers under the same general, uh, members of the same family under the same patriarch. Sheep of the same shepherd. Employees of the same CEO. We are following the same man. We are in this together. So what Paul's saying, Jewish Christians, stop thinking so much about your Jewishness and think about your Christianness. Think about Christ. Gentile Christians, stop thinking so much about your Gentileness and think about your Christianness. Think about Christ. If he was writing this today to us, he'd say, Advent Christians, stop thinking about your Advent Christianness. Think about your Christianness. Don't think in terms of Baptist Christian, Methodist Christian, Presbyterian Christian, 
Doolin's Grove Christian, Arlington Christian, Elevation Christian, House Church Christian, Traditional Christian, Contemporary Christian, uh, Emerging Christian, Reformed Christian. You're Christians. We're all in this together. Now, those things are... Those things are helpful for organizing, but they're terrible for identity. How many of you are from or have been part of a different denomination from the Advent Christian denomination? Very, very many of us. Ron, did you raise your hand? I'm saying all this with Ron Thomas in the room, so I'm watching my step. My whole background was Baptist. My education was Baptist. My churches I would belong to was Baptist. Now, some of my Baptist people hear that I've switched denominations, and, I mean, they just think it's ridiculous. I mean, we're Baptists. Baptist and right, they're synonymous, right? (laughs) How could you go and, and switch denominations? And I did have to think about it. I mean, I didn't just come bebopping on over here to the Advent Christian denomination. It was hard because I was Baptist. And in my perspective, Baptists really think they're right. about Whatever it is, they're right. Southern Baptists especially. But I was able to say, okay, if you'll have me, I'd love to come and be with you guys. Because I looked across the, the line and saw that the Advent Christians are really just Christians. They're following the same Lord I'm following. So there was no reason that I couldn't come on over here. Now, I want to bring this home a little more closely than, than Jews and Gentiles. I mean, I know you're thinking, we don't even have any Jewish Christians in this church. What does it have to do with us? There's a basic principle here, I think, that we can extract from this this passage in this book. I think the disunity that Paul was addressing was caused because people weren't following the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I think people weren't following the lordship of Jesus Christ because they weren't really believing in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that that string of thought can be a little confusing, and I don't want it to be confusing because this is the main point. If you don't believe that Jesus was who he said he was, and be honest with yourselves, if you, if you don't really believe it, you're not going to follow him as your Lord. And if we're not following him as, your, as our Lord, we are going to experience disunity. So often in churches when there's disunity, It's because somewhere along the way, somebody, some people, stopped following Jesus as their Lord. And if people stop following Jesus as their Lord, it's probably because somewhere along the way, they stopped believing in his person, who he said he was. Okay? You with me? It's kind of like, this may even be more confusing, but it's kind of like a smoke detector. If you came into my house and you heard the smoke detector just blaring and you saw smoke, but I'm sitting in the recliner eating Cheetos, watching TV, and you say, well, Matt, isn't that your smoke detector going off? I say, yeah. 
doesn't that detect smoke, which probably means there's a fire? I'm like, yeah. Like, do you not believe it? I'm like, no, I believe it. Something's wrong there. Clearly, I don't really believe that that smoke detector is what it says it is. I know that's just a, a silly analogy. But if we're sitting here and we're not united with each other, and I mean all of us who claim to be Christians, we cannot really be listening to the Lord. Or if we are, we cannot really be believing that he's the Lord. And this doesn't just apply to churches. This applies to families and friendships and marriages. And I want you to think here as we're winding down. Are there Christians that you're cut off from? Are there Christians that you are cut off from? You, you really can't be with them. You really can't work with them. You really can't speak with them. In the church, outside of the church. The problem may be that one or both of you is not following Jesus as your Lord. You know what Lord means? It means master. It means authority. It means the one who is exercising ultimate ownership rights over. It means... When you have a master, when you wake up in the morning, his agenda becomes your agenda. Having a master means when you look at your five-year plan, his five-year plan for you becomes your five-year plan for you. And here's why it works this way. Here's why this happens. If you disregard the lordship of Jesus Christ, we get disunity. Because when you're not following Jesus as Lord, your agenda you, you elevate it up above his agenda. But not everybody else is following your agenda. And it leads to frustration and anger. Because people aren't doing what you, you thought they ought to be doing. And yes, they probably have their own agenda elevated up above Jesus' agenda too. But just imagine if we were all waking up in the morning, letting Jesus's agenda become our agenda and we were all walking in stride on the same page his priorities are our priorities his passions are our passions his desires are our desires so imagine how united we could be how strong we would be imagine that take it out of church imagine that for marriage for your marriage so imagine for a minute you and your spouse waking up with the exact same idea of what you're about that day. When we elevate our agenda above Jesus's agenda, other things start happening too. We stop serving and we start becoming selfish. We stop thinking about the benefit of those around us and we start thinking about the benefit of for me. Eventually we stop forgiving and we start holding grudges. We stop being gracious and we start drawing lines, choosing sides. We stop living together humbly 
We start cutting off communication. I don't think it's any mistake that Paul's very first opening words of this letter are so extremely humble. He identifies himself, the writer, as Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He sees himself just as a slave. Yes, called as an apostle, but it almost seems like he could have just as easily been called as a, as a camel cleaner or something. I don't know what a menial job back then would have been. We'll go with camel cleaner. The main thing, <laughs> the main thing is that he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And yes, Christ called me to be apostle, but if he had called me to, to be a camel cleaner, I would have gone and cleaned camels. So humble. That humility starts to evaporate when we stop following Jesus as our Lord. Now, I want you to keep thinking here. Are there areas of your life where you know you're not following Jesus as Lord? You're not obeying him like he's your master, the owner of you. The odds are good that you're not following him as Lord there because you don't really believe that he is who he said he was. He is who he says he is. And I know you're thinking, wait a minute, Matt. I'm sitting here in church. Clearly, I believe. Well, do we? I had a conversation with someone recently. They don't go to this church, so this is a safe illustration. But we were talking about marriage stuff. And we're talking about divorce. And I asked this individual, well, do you, what do you think about divorce? And he said, I don't want it, but I think it's an option if things get incompatible and we're just not happy. I said, well, what do you think about God? He said, oh, I believe in God. I think he's real. I said, well, what do you believe about this book? Do you believe this is God's word to us? He said, yeah, I believe that. Well, what do you think this book has to say about marriage and divorce? And he's like, I think it probably says that you shouldn't get divorced unless it's something really bad. I was like, so you think there's a God, you think that God wrote this book, and you think that he said, don't get divorced, and yet you feel like it's pretty much okay. He was like, yeah. And I pressed him on it, and he was so refreshingly honest. And he said, you know, I guess Jesus is who he said he was, but I'm not ready to just give myself up to him. I've never heard anybody say that. Now, I've seen people live that. Never heard anybody say it. And I think there's great hope for this guy because he's got integrity and he's being honest with himself. So this is an invitation for us to be honest with ourselves. Do we really believe all this stuff? I'm not asking, will you go to church for the rest of your life and try to be nice? I'm not asking you that. I'm asking, do you really believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Because if you do, you will want to follow him as your Lord. And you know when that starts slipping away, because we start thinking or living things like, I know Jesus says repent, but I don't really have any sin. Well, your Lord said to repent, so he must know that you have some sin. I know Jesus says die to self, but Dr. Phil says strengthen self. 
And Dr. Phil's just so persuasive. I know Jesus says to go to him when I'm weary and I need rest, but I'm really weary, so I'm going to turn to fill in the blank instead. I know Jesus says rejoice, but things are really bad, so I'm going to just worry instead of rejoicing. I know Jesus says be anxious for nothing, don't worry about the daily necessities. So naive. I've got real problems, so I'm going to be anxious. And I'm going to take care of this myself. I know Jesus says to love my enemies, but my enemies are really unlovely. Sure, this is the guy who was spat upon, his body ripped to shreds, hung on a cross, saying this, but he doesn't understand what my enemies are like. I know Jesus says to go and make disciples, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let the professionals do that. I am not trying to lay a guilt trip out here. I feel like that's what it turned into. I am not trying to lay a guilt trip out here. I'm trying to invite you to think clearly about this stuff. Because the answer here isn't, you've got to try harder. Why aren't you out making disciples? Why aren't you obeying better? Work harder. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is think for yourself, why don't I really want to obey like this? Is Jesus really who he said he was? Because if he is, what he says to do is come to me. And what he offers is forgiveness for all of our failure. Much of the failure in this room, by the way, is up here. I mean, I'm not like preaching this at you. We're in this together. He says, I'll forgive you for all that, and I'll give you a new heart. It's my law written on it. Y'all remember that from last week or whenever? And it'll be amazing. Your desires will change, and you'll want this. It won't be a matter of brute strength muscling it. You'll want this. Jesus wants us in our families, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our church, the, the universal church, to be united. That could be him right there. He wants us to be united. What happened here a few years ago was just, you know who were here. It was, it was ugly. It was hideous. Many of you have experienced divorce personally or people that you know, and you know it's hideous and it's painful. And it scars and it hurts. We're designed for unity. Now, yes, we live in a sin-wrecked, screwed-up world where we're messed up, we hurt ourselves, and we hurt each other. And the world itself is, is against us. So I'm not trying to toss out there some candy-coated dream world where let's all skip through a field of daisies and hold hands. I know that this real world is hard. But if we, if you, and if I, will look at Jesus and be reminded that he really is who he says he is, and if you and I will follow him as our Lord, I guarantee we can be united. And strong.
and live that abundant life that Christ came to give us. So that's our invitation this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and I want to invite you, if you want to use this time as we sing, as a time to pray where you are or pray up here. If you know there's people that you're cut off from and you don't know what to do and you just want to seek God about it, pray about that. If you know there's areas of your life where you're not obeying him, go to him in prayer. If you want someone to come pray with you, I'm here, come grab me by the hand. Um, If you don't grab me by the hand, I'm going to let you pray and do business with God. I'm not going to come bug you, but I'm glad to pray with you if you want me to. Um, But before we do that, I want to pray for all of us right now.